Let's open our Bibles to Second uh, Kings chapter three. We're going to look at that tonight. Last week we looked at uh, this really amazing chapter in Second Kings chapter two, where Elijah ascends to heaven. And what an interesting thing that was! Just to, I mean, you think about this has never really happened before, especially in such a dramatic fashion. I mean, how many people, I mean, I don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us when Enoch was translated, the Bible tells us in, in Genesis, I believe it was chapter 5, that God translated Enoch, and, uh, and that was quite a mystery. There's nothing more than that. <laughs> and then we, we hear about certainly the mystery surrounding Moses' body when he died there um, on the eastern side of the Jordan River. On a mountain, and his body was never found. And there was something about the contesting of his body with the devil, and you know, Michael the archangel contesting with him about the his body, and and and, and then we see this event in the life of Elijah, where um, people see, and certainly Elisha, Elijah's protege, literally saw him taken up into heaven. Uh, the chariots of fire and horses parted the two of them, and then it says that a whirlwind just came and took Elijah up in quite a dramatic fashion. And if you remember last week, we looked at just the, the bittersweet kind of relationship that Elijah and Elisha must have had, and the difficulty it was for Elisha to see his master go. And, and to have learned from him, to have certainly modeled his life, and, and certainly respecting him the way he did. He was like a father, I'm sure, to Elisha. And then to see him go, and we looked at just the, the difficulty in life, because we find this kind of thing, even in the corporate world, where there is a CEO or somebody who started a movement or a foundation or a corporation, and then that person either dies unexpectedly or they get old and they pass the baton to someone else. And that passing of the baton can either go smoothly or it can be a catastrophe. And, um, and there are instances like that in the world, and there are certainly instances like that in the church. But God, again, wants these transitions to go well, to, for there to be a seamless transition. And we saw that with Pastor Jeff when he left and myself. It was a very uh, gentle sort of transition. It went a little quicker than we all thought, but nonetheless, there was a preparation, and, and I didn't even know it at the time, but God had ordered all of these things. And I didn't even know it until I was in the middle of it. I'm like, how did we get here? <laughs> and how, what are you going to do from here, Lord? And, but he works like that, and everything went peaceably. And so this evening, we're going to be looking at chapter 3, because now that the baton has been passed from Elijah to Elisha, we're going to see the life of Elisha in the, in the next uh, several chapters, up until about chapter 9, verse 1, is the last we're going to hear of Elisha and his ministry until we learn of his death in the 13th chapter. The Bible doesn't tell us how he died or what he was sick of, but he does die in chapter 13. We'll get to that, but we're going to be looking at some things that have happened in the life of Israel and then uh, certainly looking at how this prophet, um, his ministry during the lives of these kings that we're going to look at tonight. So I thought we would just take a quick read of chapter 3. There's only... Uh, 
27 verses, so it'll go pretty quickly, and then we'll go back and take a look at it. So let's read from chapter 3 of 2 Kings, beginning in verse 1. Now it says, Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned 12 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and mother, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. Now Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he regularly paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But it happened when Ahab died that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. And so King Jehoram went out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. And then he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? And he said, I will go up. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And then he said, which way shall we go up? And he answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. And so the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and they marched on that roundabout route seven days. And there was no water for the army, nor for the animals that followed them. And the king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? So one of the servants of the king of Israel answered and said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And then Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. But now bring me a musician. And then it happened when the musician played, that the hand of the Lord came upon him, and he said, Thus saith the Lord, Make this valley full of ditches, for thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain, yet that valley shall be filled with water, so that you, your cattle, and your animals may drink. And this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. He will also deliver the Moabites into your hand. Also, you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and shall cut down every good tree and stop up every spring of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. Now it happened in the morning when the grain offering was offered that suddenly water came by the way of Edom and the land was filled with water. And when all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to bear arms and older were gathered, and they stood at the border. And then they rose up early in the morning, and the sun was shining on the water, and the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. And they said, This is blood. The kings have surely struck swords and have killed one another. Now therefore, Moab, to the spoil." 
<laughs> so when they came to the camp of Israel, Israel rose up and attacked the Moabites so that they fled before them, and they entered their land, killing the Moabites. Then they destroyed the cities, and each man threw a stone on every good piece of land and filled it. And they stopped up all the springs of water and cut down all the good trees. But they left the stones of Kir Hereseth uh, intact. However, the slingers surrounded and attacked it. And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him, he took with him 700 men who drew swords to break through to the king of Edom, but they could not. And then he offered his eldest son, who would have reigned in his place and offered him as a burnt offering upon the wall. And there was great indignation against Israel. And so they departed from him and returned to their own land. Uh, pretty interesting um, event here in the life of Israel and certainly in the life of Judah. And it makes you wonder, what would, why would Ju, uh, Judah and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, what is he doing allying himself or allying himself with this pagan king from the north? And, you know, I think there's something in this for us to be very careful. And we're going to look at this a little more further as we get into it. But where is your allegiance? Who do you hang out with? Who do you ally yourself with? Do you ally yourself with the world and the things of the world, the current things that are happening in the world that everybody has a warm fuzzy about? Is, is, is it something that you are okay with? Have you consulted with the Lord on these things? Do these things that you're allying yourself with, do they match up to the revealed will of God? Do you know the will of God? Have you read the entire Bible? I would encourage you, if you haven't read the entire Bible, you need to do that on, as quickly as you can. I would encourage you in your normal study of the word to read, you know, read through large portions of it as much as you can and get through the Bible at least once in a year. It's possible to do. It's going to take some diligence and do that. And every year, try to read through it at least once and then take time and pick and, and, and spend time in other areas and study them. Because we need to get the word of God into us. We need to hear all of it. Because in all of the word of God, you're going to hear all the counsel of God. You're going to understand how God moves the things that he does. How he does them. You know, you're going to learn doctrine. You're going to learn what the Bible teaches about God's character. And you're also going to learn a lot about yourself in the process. And it's important for that to happen. I need to know who I really am. Because apart from Christ, I really don't know who I am. I never did know who I was. If you knew me before Christ, you would just say, scoundrel. <laughs> Sad case. That's what you would say to me. And you may, maybe you say that now, but you know, I know that God is doing something, and he's changed my life, changed my heart, put me on a different trajectory of my life that I never sought for myself. That's, that can only be God. But be encouraged. But be encouraged. And so what was he doing? What was he doing? What was he thinking? Hadn't he learned a lesson? And we're going to look at that as well. But it's a slippery rope, isn't it? It's a slippery road to be on when you try to appease man and you disobey God. Wouldn't it be better to obey God and disobey man? 
Everybody nod their heads because in theory you know that that's true. But the hard thing is, is when you're in the midst of it, when you're in the thick of it, of your life, you're going to have to make decisions. Am I going to follow what I know is true to the word of God or am I just going to be a yes man and be around the people that I really admire? Even in the church, there's people even in the church that you may look up to and be careful because if they're not following the Lord, then don't follow them. And if they are following the Lord, then follow them. But follow them as they follow Christ. You don't follow any one man. Follow Jesus Christ. Don't follow any pastor, regardless of whether his, he's got a TV program or a radio program or he's selling books. It doesn't matter because we are all fallible. And believe me, there is a great deception, great deceptions in the world today. And I think they're even greater on the people of God Because the devil already has the world in his hand. But now what he's going for is the high-value targets in the church. And you'll notice that he goes after the big shots, the guys in the megachurches, the guy who sells the billions of books, the guy who's on the face of every cover of every Christian magazine. He's going, and Christian musicians, he's going after all of them. And if they're not careful, they are going to fall into compromise. And many have. And so how important is it to take, like the Bible says, you know, with all, with all diligence, look at your heart. For from it comes forth the issues of life. Search your heart with all diligence. Keep your heart. Guard it with all diligence. For our enemy, Satan, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He loves to devour unbelievers, but he loves Christians. They taste the best to him because he can ruin their lives. He can ruin their influence. And everybody who's following the superstar all of a sudden gets discouraged and they fall away from the faith. Or they no longer seek the Lord anymore because all of their hope, all of their, the stars in their eyes weren't Jesus Christ. The stars in their eyes was everything that this man said. They waited like bated breath for the man to speak, and like an oracle of God, they, they bowed down to him, maybe not physically, but they bought all the books, and everything he said was gold. But there's really only one thing that I know that is worth noting, and that's this. <laughs> it's the word of God, not the word of any man. I don't care if he lives in Rome or not. This is the word of God. Amen? All right. So we got that straight? (laughs) Okay. So now let's go back to verse 1 here because it's a very interesting thing. Notice Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned 12 years. Now Jehoram, this this is interesting because normally when a king dies, his kingdom goes to his next son in line. And we know that Ahaziah was that king. And we've already read about his life. His ministry or his kingdom, his kingship or whatever you want, his reign only lasted one year. And so he died, but he died and he didn't have children. Just go over to your left uh, a page or probably it might even be on the same page on the left of your Bible or you might have to flip the page over. But in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 17, what does it tell us? So this Jehoram is not the son of Ahaziah. He's actually a brother. And so notice what it says in 2 Kings 1, verse 17. So Ahaziah died according to the word of the Lord, which Elijah had spoken, because he had no son, or because he had no son, 
Jehoram became king in his place. So Jehoram is really the brother of Ahaziah. He's not the son of Ahaziah. He's his, his brother because Ahaziah was only in there for one year, and he, he died, and then there was only the next son in line of Ahab was, um, or Ahaz, I'm sorry, was uh, Jehoram. And remember, and then it goes on in, the, in verse uh, 17 of 2 Kings chapter 1, it says that, he, that Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Now, one thing that you're going to have a hard time with, and, and I need to tell you this, I think I told you a couple of weeks ago, but when you look at Jehoram, his, his name can also be Joram, Joram, Jehoram, they're basically the same person. But their, their spelling can be a little different depending on where you look at. But in the northern tribes, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, right about the same time, there were two men named Jehoram, and there were also two men named Ahaziah, and they were all within a very short, they overlap quite a bit. And so as we go through this, pay special attention to which Jehoshaphat or which um, Ahaziah we're referring to and which Jehoram we're referring to because that will help you get, um, otherwise you will get confused, as I did. And it's very easy to do that. So, so Ahab, we know, reigned for 21 years, and then Ahaziah, his son, uh, Ahab being the king of the northern ten tribes, and then Ahaziah ruled for only one year. And then when he died uh, as, by an accident, unexpectedly, uh, his brother, Jehoram, reigned immediately after him, and for about 11 or 12 years. But let's go to verse 2. Notice that this Jehoram, that he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and mother. For he put away the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had made. And nevertheless, he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them. Now notice in verse 2 and 3, and I love how personal and how honest the Spirit of God is. He doesn't give us a, a stellar review of Jehoram, but he's honest about the things that he really did wrong, and he's honest about the things that he was doing right. It didn't really change him too much. I mean, he still died a, a pagan and didn't go to heaven, I'm sure. But God is honest. He says, you know what? He, he did evil on the side of the Lord, but he wasn't so wicked. He wasn't as wicked as his father and mother. But here's the deal. How wicked is wicked? How, how wicked is wicked enough? Do, do only the really wicked people go to hell? Or is it just the, the really bad wicked? Or what about the people that aren't as wicked as those wicked people? Maybe there's some kind of, you know, do they, is, can God give me a, a break? No, he doesn't give you a break. There's a whole bunch of people on this spectrum that are evil, really evil, really evil, atomic evil, nuclear evil, completely evil to the core, all of them go to hell. They don't go to heaven. So why flirt like this guy did, Jehoram? He certainly saw his dad and the things that he did wrong. He witnessed firsthand God's judgment upon him, and yet he didn't change at all. I don't know about you, but when I see God working and especially in derogatory ways against a behavior of some person, I tend to like to listen. I like to watch and say, I don't want to do that. 
Whatever he did, I want to do the exact opposite. But there's something in this old nature of ours. If we're not born again, we only have this old dead spirit that's at enmity with God. That's why the Bible says you must be born again. You need the spirit of God in you to take that old nature and suppress it and keep it down like the old thing, old ugly thing that it is. And only the spirit of God can do that. And you, Christians, we have the ability, and this is the thing that scares me, is we have the ability, even as spirit-filled, born-again people, to allow these things to creep up. We allow them, we can allow it to come through the cracks because of carelessness, because of a lack of prayer, because of lack of faith, because of a lack of feeding ourselves spiritually, a, a result of, not, of just being careless. We can allow these things to grow up like weeds and they, their desire is to choke you out. Their desire is to be, is to, you may be saved and you may be bound for heaven, but the devil, he doesn't care about whether you're going to heaven or not. He wants to ruin you. He wants to, he wants to maim you so much that all of a sudden any witness that you might have had has been snuffed out. Yes, you're going to heaven, but... You've got no witness. Nobody around you cares to listen to you anymore because you've been saying, do this, do this, do this, follow the Lord, follow the Lord, and all this, and yet you're not following the Lord. Well, why aren't you following the Lord? Why are you getting to the edge? Why are you playing the Russian roulette? And see, this man, Jehoram, had the opportunity to learn, but he did not. And learning is a really good thing. I love to learn. And I learn, I, I think, I'm learning to learn quicker from my mistakes. And I pray that you do too. You know, there's nothing wrong with making a mistake. There's nothing wrong with the, I mean, when you make a mistake or even when you fall into sin, it's all, you don't just have to throw in the towel. God's not done with you. No, you confess it as sin and get back on the horse again and continue riding. And if you do something wrong, learn from it so that you don't make that same mistake again. And if you do make the same mistake again, do you throw in the towel? If you make the same mistake again, do you throw in the towel? If you make the same mistake again, do you find your solace in drugs or booze or you know, a needle in your arm or multiple partners? What is it that you do? You know, you don't do that. You confess it and you get back on the horse and you keep riding with the Lord. What do you do? Joram, Jehoram had that possibility he had that opportunity, but he didn't take it. His own will said no. And the human will is like a nasty rascal. And it needs to be broken. My will needed and needs to still be broken. It needs to be fashioned. It needs to be submitted. It needs to be crucified. Yes, crucified. The world doesn't like talking about that. But let me tell you something. Your old nature needs to be killed. That's why Paul said, put it to death. Put those old members to death. No longer flirt with them anymore. They are going to drag you down like a person who is swimming and someone from underneath you grabs your leg and pulls you under. That's exactly what sin will do to you and it will never stop hunting you. It will never stop hunting you and you have a decision to make. I need to get in the game. I need to get my eyes focused on Christ. I need to get my heart in prayer. I need to be serious about this walk because even if nobody else around you is being serious, Christian, you have to be the one to set the example. Blaze that trail. Don't settle for compromise in your life anymore. You can't afford it. And one day, if you allow continued compromise in your life, it's going to kill you. And we've seen it happen. Even in the church, somebody who's got a 
heroin problem or a drug problem. Oh, I'm, I know I'm born again. And they may be. They may just be struggling with this addiction. And God will allow you to be taken out. And you may go to heaven. <laughs> but you've discouraged a lot of saints around you. And you've shortened your life. If you really love Jesus, doesn't he deserve the glory? Doesn't he deserve the praise? Doesn't he deserve for what he has saved me from in eternity in hell? And, and then he saves me and he gives me this, this um, uh, confidence of heaven, knowing that I'm going to go to heaven. If that is true, then doesn't he, and that's for eternity, folks, it never ends. So doesn't he deserve Right now, from this day forward, all that I have, my whole heart, my whole mind, everything that I have, he deserves it. And God help me if I don't surrender to that. Because if I don't, I don't really understand what this is all about. Do you follow me? You need to get into the game. We can't play church anymore, church. I'm not saying that you do, but I know that this message goes way beyond the four walls of this building. And there are people that are in, going to be in a car hearing this message somewhere down the road here. And they need to hear that because they're flirting with things they ought not to be flirting with. And it's going to kill them. They need to repent. Jehoram, there was no repentance. And yet the Spirit of God is so honest. Nevertheless, he persisted. Nevertheless, even though he put away the sacred pillar, which is a, uh, a pillar, it was an idol. I believe it was a phallic symbol that they would use for the goddess Asherah, who was a, the goddess of, of fertility. And this, this obelisk, this thing, you know, at least he had the wherewithal to say, you know what, that's really bad. And God says, yeah, that's, better, that's pretty bad. And there's also a lot of other things, but Jehoram says, well, I'll just take that away. God says, good start, Jehoram. You do that. But take a close look at all this other stuff, too. I don't want to hear that. I'll take away the really hideous thing. I never liked it anyway. But nevertheless, he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, his great-great-great-great-grandfather who made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them. And then now in verse 4 it says, Now Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder. So Moab is this area, if you were to look at a map of Israel, it would be Moab would be uh, to the southeast of the Dead Sea. We know that there is the... Sea of Galilee, then there's the Jordan River, and then there's this Dead Sea. Well, on the southeast part of that is where Moab was located. And remember, Moab is the place where David's great-grandmother lived, or came from. What was her name? Ruth. Yes, the Ruth, the Moabitess, the Gentile. Yes, who was in also in the line of Jesus Christ. In the physical line of Jesus Christ, yes, a Gentile woman. Think about that. Pretty interesting. Is God a God of grace, or is he just so stuck on rigid rules? You do this. If you don't do this, I'm just going to smack you around and crush you like a bug. Is that God? The religious world, you know, the, they can get like that, but God is not like that. When people get legalistic like that, where it's just rules, 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 and they get so legalistic and don't fall out of that line, I'm going to smack you. You hear people like that, and you see things like that, and they're just frustrated because they don't understand grace. 
Holiness to them is a list of do's and don'ts, and if you cross and you you do the don'ts, then you're going to get smacked around a little bit. Hey, listen, God knows your frame. He knows that you are dust. He knows that I am dust. He knows that there's nothing good within me. The only redeemable thing in me is when his spirit has indwelt me. And then he's like, I want to redeem that. Of course, he wants to redeem every person who is rejecting him. That's true. He loves everyone. But God wants more of you. He wants to, he wants to be in the very innermost part of you. He wants to be the thing that governs your thoughts and your minds, and especially, well, your actions as well. So Misha, this king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he regularly paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. And so uh, Misha paid annual tribute to, uh, to Ahab, the king of, uh, of Israel, and so now we find that now that his son has taken his, uh, his place, that Misha's going, well, now that Ahab is dead, I'm not going to follow his son. I'm, just gonna, I'm, I'm not going to obey this anymore. It was a hardship already on us, but because he's so powerful, I did it. But now that his son's in power, eh, I'm just going to go away, boy, you bother me. <laughs> but it happened when Ahab died that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel so King Jehoram went out of Samaria, which was the, uh, the capital of the northern ten tribes at that time, and he mustered all of Israel, all those ten tribes, he mustered everyone, and he went and he sent you to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, saying, the king of Moab has rebelled against me, will you go with me to fight against Moab? And, and notice what Jehoshaphat says, he says, I will go up. I am as you are, and my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Does that ring a bell with you from what we've read in the last couple of weeks concerning Jehoshaphat, king of Judah? It's curious because Jehoshaphat allied himself with Jehoram's father, who was King Ahab. And it tells us in, in uh, 1 Kings chapter 22, it tells us, that, uh, well, let me just read it to you, First Kings chapter 22. This is the second time, at least. Actually, this is the third time now that Jehoshaphat has intertwined himself, gotten involved with this ungodly alliance with the northern ten tribes. They were ungodly because they never ceased from their idolatry. Remember, Jeroboam was the first one. Right after Solomon died, Jeroboam took the northern ten tribes, and his son Rehoboam took the southern two tribes. But the northern ten tribes, they built two centers of idolatrous worship, one in Bethel and the other one in Dan. They set up golden images of calves. And you can visit these places if you go to Israel in March or in February. You can see where these places happened, where this, this happened. You can see it. I've seen it. And so what does it tell us? It says that now three years had passed. This is 1 Kings 22. This is the first time that um, Jehoshaphat had with Ahab. Three years passed without war between Syria and Israel. And then it came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went down to visit the king of Israel. Notice this. And the king of Israel, who was Ahab at the time, said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth in Gilead is ours, which is this, this city on the eastern side of the Jordan River? But we hesitate to take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. And so he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to fight at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat 
Jehoshaphat said to the king, and I verbatim, he says the exact same thing that now he's telling to his son. He says, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And yet God rebuked him through Hanani the seer. In Second Chronicles chapter 19, remember what God says to Jehoshaphat. You would think he would have learned from this instance alone with Ahab. Jehoshaphat, it says in Second Chronicles 19, verses 1 through 3, it says, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned safely to his house in Jerusalem. And Yehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, and this is after this battle that Jehoshaphat went with Ahab to go and fight with him. And Yehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to Jehoshaphat, I just said that, didn't I? I just repeated it. And this is what he said. Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Jehoshaphat, should you... Help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord is upon you. Nevertheless, good things are found in you and that you have removed the wooden images from the land and have prepared your heart to seek God. So there was something good that happened here. There was some some good thing in him. And this endeavor with the king of Ahab, it almost cost him his life. And he also tried allying himself to Ahab's son, Ahaziah. Remember, he only lived for one year. But in Second Chronicles, it tells us that he tried to ally himself with him. And then another prophet comes to him and says, don't get involved with this man. Stay away from him. And then, the, the, and, and then finally, we see him here. You know, now with Ahaz, or, um, excuse me, Jehoram, he's doing the same thing. It's like you would think that he would have learned a lesson already. But why would Jehoshaphat go back and do the same with Ahab's other son, Jehoram? I mean, I, I thought about this, and I'm like, well, maybe Jehoshaphat was a peacemaker. He's trying to make peace and have some kind of good feeling between the king of the north and with him as well, when he should have remained separate from the northern kings of Israel, or the northern tribe of Israel, the northern kingdom. And it is somewhat understandable in the natural for Jehoshaphat to do this. I'm sure he didn't want to have enemies with the north and have to go battle uh, to go at, uh, to battle against them at some point, brother against brother, tribe against tribe. I'm sure he wanted to avoid all that, which is all fine and good. But I believe God would rather have had Jehoshaphat remain unentangled with the kings of the north because he would have had a better uh, relationship with with the Lord. And he would have kept his people out of danger. And God would have sustained him, come what may. It's always important to obey God, regardless of how things look on the outside. Because obeying the Lord is always harder than caving in and doing the thing that everybody else does. It will always be harder to follow Christ and to be obedient to God than it will to cave into sin. That is easy. That comes like breathing to us. It's so easy to do that. And yet to stay true and stay faithful to Christ is a very difficult thing. And isn't it true that it says the the old adage, it says the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. We see the same thing in Ahab's son. But what does the Bible tell us? 
you know, what, Joshvat, what are you doing? In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 14, it says this, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And the obvious answer is nothing. There is, no, there is nothing that holds them together. They are complete opposites of one another. And what accord has Christ with Belial, or somebody who is a, a, a satanic character, somebody who is governed by the flesh, or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Again, we have to be uh, uh, reach out to unbelievers and stuff like that, but we are not to be like this with them. We're not to engage with them and, and enjoy the things that they engage. No, you be separate and stand on the outside and invite them to come to the true light. Invite them. Be separate from all of that nonsense and invite them out. Don't get back in the mix of it and say, well, I'm going to evangelize my friends who are all these bad guys. Hey, listen, you come out from among them and let them come to you. And if they will not come to you, then so be it. You continue to pray and be the good example. But do not go back into the the den of vipers. Do not go back into the den of vipers. Get out of the den and call them out one by one. And then it goes on in Corinthians, it says, And what part is a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. Yes, all of us here tonight, we are the temple of the living God. The Spirit of God indwells us if you are a believer. And let me say this, if the Spirit of God does not indwell you, you are not a Christian. I don't care how much money you give to the church. I don't care what you do for the elderly woman across the street. I don't care that you gave up smoking and stopped swearing. I don't care about anything any of that, and neither does God, because he looks down and sees either his image upon you by his spirit, or he does not. And if you are not a born-again believer, you are not a Christian. I don't care what you do, how you say it, what you give, it makes no difference. That's why Jesus said to a very religious man, Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be born again. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You need to be born from above. You need to ask God for the Spirit of God to come in you. Otherwise, you are not a Christian. You are just a polished sinner. <laughs> That's all we are. Apart from the Spirit of God, I can clean up my act, and I can you know, stop chewing tobacco and stop dating women who do, and I can, and I can do all these things, and unless the Spirit of God is in me, all I'm going to be doing is... Just nothing. It's, it's worth nothing. Because God's not going to go on, wow, you did all those things? Wow, you did more righteousness than Rob Kellogg. But Rob Kellogg knows me. And I don't know who you are. Depart from me. Is the Spirit of God in you tonight? Are you a believer or are you playing games? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of living God, as God has said. Notice, God says this, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, here's the exhortation, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and don't touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. That's God speaking to you and me tonight. Don't you love to hear those things? 
He wants to bless you. He wants to encourage you. He wants to love on you. And we are the ones who step out of the way. We are the ones in our disobedience. We move out of the way of God's blessing. And God's going, hey, come on back. Confess it and get back into fellowship with me. Jehoram would not have any of it. And yet we are to lead lives of consecration. Unlike, you know, Jehoshaphat made a big error here. Three times he did this. And I believe Jehoshaphat, who was one of the better kings of Judah, he was. There was only a handful of them that were really good, and he was one of them. He was a reformer king. He did some really good things, but, but why, you know, he, need, he needed to live that life of consecration, and he wasn't really walking in that like he should have. But we are not to be like the world. If Jesus has placed his spirit in me and has redeemed me from death and hell and put me into his glorious kingdom, why would I want to be like the world? Why would I want, like Jehoshaphat, why would I want to even be near this guy? I know who his parents are. They were idol worshipers as well. And he is no different. It's one thing to go tell him and tell him the truth and give him the love of God, yes, but don't get into business with him. Don't get into his endeavors with him. No, you be separate. Stay out of it. What does it tell us in Corinthians 15, verse 33? Evil, evil company corrupts good habits. Remember that. Evil company corrupts good habits. But awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some who have not the knowledge of God, some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame, Paul said to the Corinthians. Evil company corrupts good habits. So verse 8, it says, Then he said, Jehoshaphat said to King Jehoram, well, which way shall we go up? And he answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. Now, the way this would work, remember our map, if you will, of Israel. You've got, just so you can understand where this is, you've got the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and you've got the Dead Sea over here, and Moab is down here. So what they would do is, Jerusalem is somewhere over here. They're going to actually go all the way down and go underneath the, the Dead Sea, and then come up north into, through Edom, finally into Moab, and that was the path. And the reason they chose that path is because going up around the north part of the Dead Sea, that was very fortified on that side for them to get into the border of Moab. So they took the path of least resistance, which was a smart military thing, sort of. And even God, in the midst of all this, God is still going to be directing things, and it's amazing to me. And so, uh, in fact, uh, there was a stone that was discovered in 1868, and it's now in the Louvre in Paris. I've actually seen it with my own eyes. It's called the Moabite Stone. Have anybody heard of it? The Moabite Stone? It's on display in the Louvre, and there's a, a transcription of what exactly what, um, what is said on that stone. And basically, this gentleman that we're talking about now, this king of Moab, this man named Misha, who was the king of Moab, he wrote on this stele, which is basically just a thing that he engraved on this stone, he engraved what we're reading now. He engraved in there this battle between him and Israel, and he engraved in this battle that, as we just read, we read through the whole chapter, toward the end, he doesn't lose his life and he doesn't lose his capital, but a lot of men were killed. And then he sacrifices his own son, and the people of Israel, the kingdom, and Judah, for whatever reason, they're like, this is just, we're out of here, is basically what they did. And that was like the camel, that, the straw that broke the camel's back. 
to see this man do this horrendous thing, even though they were doing similar evil things. For whatever reason, they decided to leave. And this Misha attributed Israel and Judah and Edom fleeing or leaving them after he's pretty much destroyed, except he still has his life and the men in the palace there. But they, they decide to leave these three kings. And Misha, in this Moabite stone, he says, it's because my God was with me. Chemosh, this God that I worship, this false God, he is the one who preserved me and protected me from the king, from the God of Israel. And some other things the stell says, the Moabite stone. But th- this, is, this is where it came from. And this is the man who wrote the stone. He says, me. He, he wrote this in the first person. So verse 9, the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. Remember, Edom is just to the south of Moab. So you got the Dead Sea here, you got Edom here, and then you got Moab. And so they marched on that roundabout route seven days. So they go all the way down from Jerusalem in that area, and they go all the way down the southern end going east and then finally going up north. And they had a problem because there was no water for the army nor for the animals that followed them. As they would travel to go into battle, they would take their own food source. They would take the Angus beef with them. Hallelujah. They would take the herd of, a herd of cattle with them because they need to eat. But they ran out of water. So that kind of creates a problem. And this king of Edom, uh, the reason he is going with the king of Israel and he's going with the king of Jeru- or Judah is because Edom was a vassal king of Judah. And so there was this dependence, this relationship with the king of Edom, and that's why all three of them finally come against Moab. They go up in the north. So verse 10, the king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. And you can, you can hear the king of Israel, his panic, but Jehoshaphat says, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And so one of the servants of the king of Israel answered and said, Elisha is here. And so um, it's interesting that when Jehoshaphat went out with Ahab uh, in, in 1 Kings chapter 22, he inquired of the Lord at the very beginning before they went out. But now we see them already in process. They're already in trouble, and they hadn't inquired of the Lord at all. But finally, thank God, Jehoshaphat has enough spirituality in him to say, hey, we better inquire of the Lord now. We're in trouble. Where's the prophet? And Elisha was either, either with the, the company or he was very nearby. And so they, they go to him. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. And so the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to hear Elisha. And then Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? So Elisha knows his, Jehoram's father because he, he served and was... Uh, he. he he was, his ministry was at the same time as Ahab, and so Elisha knew the wickedness of Ahab, and he certainly knew his son, Jehoram, and he's like, what have I got to do with you? Why don't you go back home and, and, and serve your mother and your father's gods, the, God, the Baal and the Ashtoreth? Go and, go and serve them, because that's really where your heart is. Why are you coming to me? 
And so he sternly rebukes this man, and he says, go to the prophets of your mother and your father. And, and then the king of Israel said, no, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. So this king of Israel is clearly becoming unhinged because this is the second time now that he's said the same thing. He's realizing he's in a real pinch. He doesn't know how to fix it. And Jehoshaphat is going, well, let's talk to the Lord and see what he says. And Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, surely were it not for uh, that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, because Elisha loved Jehoshaphat because he was a good king. Were it not that I regarded his presence, I would not even look at you nor see you. That's pretty strong rebuke, wouldn't you say? If, If Jehoshaphat wasn't even in your presence, I wouldn't even waste my time with you guys. That's basically what he's saying. But now bring me a musician. (laughs) Bring me a musician. And then it happened when the musician played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. See, Elisha was so frustrated. And I love the humanity of this, this wonderful prophet because he was frustrated with this whole thing and he didn't like it at all. And because of his own emotions, he needs to settle down. And so what? He, he asked for a musician to come, and music is soothing, isn't it? Music has a way of just quelling this anxious heart of ours. And most people, when they want to relax, what do they do? They listen to music. If you're really hectic and you want to relax, you would listen to Beethoven's symphony, one of those symphonies. Or you listen to a Brahms symphony. So he brings a musician And music can be either used for good or ill, doesn't it? Can't it? Because we know that Satan often uses music for his own means when God intended music to glorify him. I'm just going to paraphrase a few things here for you. But in Ezekiel 28, God is speaking through uh, Ezekiel, and he's speaking to the power behind the king of Tyre. And the power behind the king of Tyre is nothing more than Satan himself. And, 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 and God is addressing Satan, Lucifer, addressing him directly uh, through this king. And he goes on and he says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. This is Ezekiel 28, verse 13. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, all the bling, it was all around you. And, and the workmanship of your, of your timbrels and pipes was prepared in you on the day you were created. Yes, did you hear that? Satan was created. He's not equal with God. He was a created being, and he was originally supposed to bring glory to God, and perhaps through worship, or, or, or somehow he was able to uh, obtain the worship of all of creation and bring it before God, and he himself was uh, uh, outfitted in his body, evidently, uh, with timbrels and pipes, and it was prepared for you, God says, on the day that you were created And so Satan is very much into music. That's why he has perverted it. That's why many of our children are listening to garbage that's affecting their soul and thus affecting their behavior and their thoughts and their actions. What kind of music do you listen to? I'm sure that when Elisha said, bring me a musician, the musician didn't come and play, you know, Crazy Train or Smoke on the Water or Stairway to Heaven. Music. Because I'm a musician, I'm a worship leader, I know how important music is. 
But music is powerful. That's why politicians use it when they, when, they, when they go out into the different cities and places they campaign. They know, they try to get popular artists of the day to play at their rallies. They know that if they can capture the ears and the heart of the people, they are almost there for a positive vote. They do. They use music. You look at everyone. I mean, everybody has, every politician has their puppet musician or group of musicians that agree with them politically, and they exploit them. And they're glad to be exploited because they get more notoriety and more press. But Satan has hijacked music, and in the last 20 years or so, all of the talented musicians, they flock to play for the devil. And they're all selling records and millions of records. But now there are even more talented people within the last 20 years in Christian music that are playing for the Lord. But the temptations of them are great right now, and there is a great uh, uh, potential for them to compromise because now it becomes a business. And there's a lot of Christian artists that started off with the right heart. They wanted to worship God, and it was a good thing. And all of a sudden, the, the machinery of the music industry starts cranking, and even in the music industry, there's a machinery about it. And if they're not careful, they can be sucked up into the whole machine of the whole thing, and it becomes something different than what they started. And many of them, I think, would long to just go back to their local church again and just say, you know what, I'd like to get back. But there's people who fill those positions that are doing a better job than you. Yeah, you got all the millions of records. And yeah, you'd fill the house, but you'd have a a bunch of um, uh, compromised Christians sitting there listening to you. Hopefully they'll hear the gospel and be saved. But notice that God finally speaks through Elisha, and, and thus says the Lord, uh, God speaking through Elisha, says, Make this valley full of ditches, for thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain, yet that valley shall be filled with water, so that you and your cattle and your animals may drink. And I notice this in verse 18, it says, And this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. For him to do this without rain, without any kind of deluge, God does this. He says, Just be faithful to make ditches. Just create dish, dig these ditches in this valley and in the morning the water is going to be there and they simply and this is a simple matter for what the Lord's going to do and then I love what it says in verse 8 oh and by the way remember that thing you were asking about for deliverance and to conquer the Moabites that's going to happen too it's almost like a postscript yeah that's I'm going to do that too but I'm going to blow your mind with what I'm going to do now Is anything too hard for the Lord? I would encourage you to read Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 16 and 17. We don't really have the time. Jeremiah 32, verses 16 and 17. I would encourage you to read Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 14, where you know, the Lord comes and tells Sarah, you know, her and Abraham in their old age, that they're going to have a son at their ripe old age that they are, you know, in their 90s and, and stuff like that. And, and, and Sarah laughs, and God says to Abraham, I heard you, Sarah laugh. And he approaches Sarah, Sarah, you laughed. No, I didn't. Yeah, you did. You laughed. But know this, about this time next year, you're going to have, you're going to have a, a baby bump. Are you kidding me at my old age? Yes. Is anything too hard for the Lord, he says? 
Is anything too hard? And that's a good question for us to ask. You know, as I think about this monumental project of, of even putting a floor in this whole church, you know how expensive that is? It's huge. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Or what about the Bread of Life Academy? All the preparations, all the things that we need to start that school next fall, Lord willing. It's monumental. But is anything too hard for the Lord? Verse 19, and also you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and cut down every good tree and stop up the springs and ruin every good piece of land with stones. And the reason for that is to make it uninhabitable. When you would attack your enemy's lands, you wouldn't go there and just wipe out the people. No, you'd, 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 you'd destroy the land so that they can't really rebuild it. And it's a, it's a real heavy tax. They not only lose life, but the, prop, the land itself is destroyed. And when God says to do that, you'd better do it. And they did. Now it happened on the morning when the grain offering was offered, notice that suddenly water came by way of Edom and the land was filled with water. It came by the way of Edom and the land was filled with water. And and I think this is um, really interesting because you know, as the sun is coming up and as the red rocks of Edom in that area, as people look across the water and they see the sun coming up and the, the red rocks and the reflection and all that, all that water in those valleys look like blood from the other side. And so they're looking at that thing and they're thinking to themselves, because it didn't rain. <laughs> so there's this water that looks like blood. And so the Moabites are thinking, these guys have killed each other. Let's go in and swoop in for the, the booty and grab all their swords and all their food and all their cattle and all their belongings, and we're going to have a big party tonight. But then they get over there and realize that God had done something miraculous as a ruse to bring them out for destruction. And he did. But this water, oh my goodness, time is my enemy. Hmm. Let's go through this rather quickly, but something I just brought to my mind as I was reading this, this this whole thing about water coming from Edom is very interesting to me. And the reason it is, is because it tells us that in the great tribulation period, which is yet future to us, after the church has been removed, and then there's a seven years of God's judgment upon the earth, that God says in Revelation that he's going to preserve 144,000 of his people, and he's going to preserve them, we believe, in the rock city of Petra. And guess where Petra is? It's in Edom. <laughs> it's modern-day Jordan in that area, but that's the area of Edom, That's where it comes from. And I I think it's interesting. It's almost like a foreshadowing of what we're reading here about something that's going to happen yet future. Uh, Let me just read it to you for the sake of time. But in Revelation chapter 12, verse 13, it says this. And this is somewhere about the midpoint of the tribulation period. Somewhere right after the seventh trumpet judgment has happened, prior to the seven last bowls of wrath, somewhere right there in the middle of that seven-year period, 
Around the three-and-a-half-year mark, it says this. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, and here it's using a an, an, um, an picturesque and symbolic language uh, to show what is happening here. We know that the, the woman is Israel and the dragon is Satan. And it says, But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and a half a time, which you know is three-and-a-half years or 42 months or 1,000. 260 days from the presence of the serpent the antichrist so the serpent spewed water notice this he spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman this israel these this 144,000 that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood but the earth helped the woman and the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of its mouth in Edom, assumingly, because that's where Petra is. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who kept the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Well, mark this down too, Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 through 6, because notice what happens. When, uh, when Jesus comes back to the earth, he's first with us, he is first going to go to Edom, and he is going to rescue these 144,000 in Basra, in Edom, at Petra. He's going to rescue them first. And notice what it says in Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 6. It says, who is this? Isaiah prophesying of an event yet way future. Well, maybe not even as long as way as we think. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. And here's the answer. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Who is that speaking? It's Jesus. That's who it is. And then they're going to ask, why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? And Jesus will respond in verse 3, I have trodden the winepress alone and from the people and from the peoples no one was with me for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments and I have stained all my robes for the day of vengeance is in my heart and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was none to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me. In my own fury, it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought them down, brought down their strength to the earth. And so we believe that Jesus, when he returns, he is going to rescue these witnesses, these 144,000 out of the rock city of Petra, spare them. There's going to be a battle there, and God is going, Jesus himself is going to win this battle. And then he is going to go to Jerusalem, where he's going to do more battle and finish off these enemies. And it tells us that in Zechariah chapter 14. Write this down. Zechariah chapter 14, the first five verses. And I'll read this, and we'll move along pretty quickly after this. I love this. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city will go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. All of these nations that are going to be gathered in Armageddon, he is going to be uh, gathering them together. And, as he, and, and, and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. Notice verse 4. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives 
which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley, and half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. And then you shall flee, speaking of the Jews in Jerusalem, through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you, and we'll come back with him too. And we're going to witness all this. I wonder how much battle there is going to be with us. We're probably going to be sitting there on our horses just going, yeah, Lord, hit him again. That's hard to think about, isn't it? That God would fight in battle against people, against kingdoms, against nations that have rejected him. That's hard for us to understand because we have brought up, we've been brought up that God is a God of love. And yes, he is. But there's a point when, that, when, the, when his grace, even in the tribulation, God is going to be gracious, but there's coming a point where you've reached the Rubicon and your fate is sealed. There's going to come a point where those people, unfortunately, and God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. The Bible tells us that. So verse 21, and I just I wanted to bring that to your attention because it sounds very similar it's almost like what we're reading tonight in 2 Kings 3 is almost like a foreshadowing of what God is going to do yet future. This flood, the Antichrist is going to flood, and I believe it's going to be probably water of some kind. And there's some reservoirs around in that area. It could be that he's going to blow one of those up, and that water is just going to flush through and go right into Petra, and his, he's going to design something to, to wash them out and to flood them, and God's going to say, I'm going to save them from that. Now he's going to cause an earthquake. The earth's going to open up and all that water just goes. Nice try, Satan. <laughs> Can you outsmart God? Is anything too hard for the Lord? So it says, and we're wrapping up here. Thank you for your patience. So they rose up, the Moabites, they look across the valley and they see the sun shining on the water. And no doubt uh, in Edom, in that area, the the, even the clay, like in Tennessee or Kentucky, when you go and you see Kentucky and you drive through it, all that red clay you see on the hills and stuff like that, similar kind of thing here, the red rock and the sun and the water, all of this is like a, an illusion that God is placing on these Moabites to get them to come out in their confidence and for them to be taken. And so they said, this is blood. The kings have surely uh, struck swords and killed one another. Now to the spoil. So they came and they actually come against them, the Israelites and the, Jew, the people of Judah and, and the people of Edom. And they run back and they destroyed their cities. Each man threw a stone on it and stopped up the springs and did all of these things, destroying the land. And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him, he took 700 men and he, who drew swords to break through to the king of Edom. But even in that, he could not. So in, in order to appease his God, thinking that, oh my gosh, I'm going to lose everything now, what does the thinking man do? What does the idolater do? He says, well, I must sacrifice to my God. I got to sacrifice to this God of Chemosh. What's the best thing I can do to, I'm really in a straight here and I got to do something because I'm, I'm losing, I'm losing. I'm about ready to be had. I know what I'll do. I'll take my son, my only son, the heir to my throne and I'll sacrifice him and that'll appease Chemosh and he'll help me. And so that's what he does. He took his eldest son, verse 27, 
who would have reigned in his place, and he offered him as a burnt offering upon the wall. And there was great indignation against Israel. And so they departed from him and returned to their own land. And so some have thought, um, have put forth that the better translation here could be that there was a great indignation in Israel. Uh, that, that might be a better translation, perhaps. And there's a little bit of conjecture here, of course. But the inference seems to be that they were all so incensed by what he did that the armies of Judah and Jerusalem just said, you know what? We've seen it all now. We're, just, we're getting out of here. We're going back home. <laughs> um, or it could mean that Judah had indignation against Israel for going to war with the Moabites to the first place, which resulted in this horrific act of murder and idolatry. Or further yet, finally, it could mean that the Moabites had great indignation against Israel for pursuing them, forcing them to do what they had to do. The king forcing himself, forcing his hand to kill his only son. It could be that the Moabites had great indignation against Israel for that. But again, Misha, when these tribes, when these three kings go away, what does Misha, king of Moab, do? He gives credit to his God. It says that on the Moabite stone. That's what's so interesting about that stone. He gives credit to Chemosh, his false god. But none of this, unfortunately, turned away Israel. If, if they were repulsed by what happened on the wall there as he sacrificed his son, even if that is the case, it didn't change their hearts one bit because they continued in their idolatry. So it's good for us to examine our hearts too, right? And especially as we began, you know, just really take, take stock in your heart and the, the things, the places, the people, the things that you align yourself with. Who are you aligned with? Are you aligned with Jesus or are you aligned with the world? And there's really only one solution if you answer yes to any of those things. Yes, I am aligned to the world. I, I got worldly friends and I, I do things with them that I shouldn't do. Well, if that is the case and you've got one thing before you and that is to turn, that's what repent means. You turn from those things and you go in the opposite direction. There's no way around it. You can't just pretend like it doesn't happen and sweep it under the rug and, well, I only smoke twice with them. I only you know, drink, I only get blasted with them once a, once a week once a month, you know, come on, God, you know, I got to have some fun. God's going, no, I got a much more fun for you, but it has nothing to do with that. Wouldn't you agree, for those of you who are believers, and I believe all of you are here today, tonight, <laughs> are you, are you, is your life better off now that you've turned away from that stuff? The less worldly you have become, the greater joy you have, the true joy that's not based on sorrow. I mean, wouldn't you agree? I mean, if you, if you do, you know, then let's stand. <laughs> let's stand and pray. And thank God for giving us a heart. Lord, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for this passage, Lord. It's a, a real challenge, Lord, because we live in a very unique time in history in the church and certainly a unique time in our country. And Lord, many people are frustrated. Many people are angry. Many people are trying to find solutions at the bottom of the bottle. They're trying to find solutions in so many vices and so many ways. And Lord, you're beckoning to us to come to you. Lord, help us to do that tonight, Lord, to put aside all of our worldliness. 
Lord, help us not to be like Jehoshaphat, Lord, seemingly having a foot in the kingdom and dabbling in, in compromise, Lord. And certainly help us not to be like a Jehoram who was just completely given over to evil. Lord, help us and cleanse us, Lord. And be with us tonight and tomorrow and just wash us and cleanse us by the blood of Jesus Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.